thank you everybody for for coming tonight and having some time to dig into Nehemiah 9. Um, that was, I didn't think about how long of a scripture that was. I think that was longer than Donna's scripture, just less names. That was that, but, but wasn't that a story? If you stuck with that scripture, wasn't that a story? There's, there's themes that emerge. There's plot. There's, there's a whole history being recounted. I can't wait to dive. So, so here, here's, here's what I want to tee up for us tonight. Um, you might notice that Nehemiah 8 last week, for those of you who are able to hear the teaching last week, follows a very similar structure to this uh, chapter. The people gather. They're convicted. They're cut to the heart, as we called it right there. They're mourning. They're in a place of saying, we cannot get rid of this feeling in our heart that we have, that we are wrong with God. Something must, that, that we are humble and we are broken and we are saying we want to come and we just want to appeal to you to take us back. All right? And they did that. And in the, last, in the last sermon, in that last teaching we had in chapter 8, they come and they gather and it's just such a compelling conviction. And they mourn and they're moved as the law is read before them. And then what follows that is, is a wake-up to the Word of God, a wake-up to their cultural traditions, infusing these feasts and festivals with just a deep, deep, like, entrenching themselves, just, just meditating over the Word during that time. But they're also following the law. They're following, it's hard for us as, like, being so out of this context to understand like what that means. They are, they are following these festivals as part of the law. So when these certain dates come, they go, this is a festival where God has asked me to do this. This is a celebration. And so in the seventh month, it's significant that these various things are happening. And so we get an interesting experience. We get an experience where we have a people who are um, convicted and feel the need to confess but are in a time and a place where that confession isn't necessarily possible or functional. And I think we actually can relate to that. We've been in times where we go, there's something on my heart, but now is not the time. Maybe I'm at work and this is not a time. So I've got to, I've got to tuck this back down, right? I know I've wronged somebody and I really want to reach out, but now is not the time. And so Israel has stuffed this down into their collective hearts and they've come out of this last festival and they've gone, yeah, but I haven't shaken this feeling that I'm still mournful inside, and I still need to know, I still need to, to come to God in a certain way, so they gather the priests and the Levites, which are their, their priestly tribe, the Levites are their priestly tribe, and they say, they, they basically bring them together, and they mourn with fasting and sackcloth on their, on their they wear sackcloth and they fast, and they put earth on their heads, some translations might say they put ash on their heads. What are they doing? Right, well, if, if we have some time in the Bible, we can think of a story of Jonah, right? This is a story that pops out to me. Jonah goes and he preaches to Nineveh, right? Which is just, Nineveh is going to be destroyed unless they repent. And Jonah goes and he preaches, and guess what? They come out into the streets in sackcloth and ash, right? Over their heads. And they are just saying, sackcloth was this rough, goat-like fiber, and they're just itchy, rough kind of fiber. And they're saying, I'm willing to be publicly miserable. I'd be, will, be willing to be made into nothing if it means that God would accept me. I'm in this level of mourning and sadness that I'm going to publicly wail, right? It's like a funeral of the soul. They're saying, I have put that to death. 
And so that's the context that we jump into this. The people are assembled, but this time they're assembled to an even greater sort of intensity. And I had to ask myself, I go, you know, I could preach a basically the same fact. You guys, I'd spent an hour or two, started to type out my outline. I go, I just preached the sermon last week. Like this is returning, repenting, recommitting, all the same things we talked about, yielding, all of these things we talked about last week about what the word of God does to us and how, and how our hearts are motivated and change what God is calling us to do. That all happens here. But I said, but there's something different here. Most of this chapter is engaging with a history. And the theme of that history is about things that are so relatable for us. What does someone who keeps their promises look like? What is somebody who's loyal and keeps their promises? What does that person look like? What does a God who keeps his promises look like? And, of course, the other side of that coin are you somebody who keeps your promises? Having seen the extent to which God keeps his promises, and then seen the extent to which Israel flip-flops back and forth, we have, to, we have to ask this question. We have a God who keeps his promises. Do we Are we good promise keepers? Can we identify with Israel as people who have broken a promise? Broken, broken the most basic fundamental promises, for those who are married, marital promises. For those who are in family, familial promises, right? Loyalties, times when you're supposed to be there for somebody. Promises in workplaces, promises in friendships that have broken down because people didn't keep promises and trust was broken. We are people that can identify with this, this complexity around keeping promises. And we are people that must raise our hand and say, we are hypocrites when it comes to keeping promises. So many times our yes has not been our yes. Our no has not been our no. So the question today is about promises. And we move from this. So if, if you didn't catch last week, we've moved from rebuilding the wall of Nehemiah to rebuilding the people. And so as the people are looking at, we are now, now that we have a wall around us, we can actually see we are still broken people. We have seen God's mercy in building this wall, but we have to come to him and we have to, at the end of this chapter, what do they do? They literally sign a document and we'll go into that more next week. They, they literally make a covenant in writing, a sealed document. So this is what all of this is amping up to is putting their name on the dotted line with God to make and again renew a promise that they have historically as people no license or reason to make. God ought never believe that they would keep this promise. So that's the emotional space that we run into. And we can so identify with that. So there's, there's some things that tee you off to that, want, tip you off to that. One is verse 2. It says, The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So there's two kinds of mourning here that are, that are a little unusual for us to relate to. The first is that they have separated themselves. They've said, who is Israel? Who is not? Right? Who are people that maybe through intermarriage and their in-laws or they're people that just, they're people that have no connection whatsoever. They just live in the province, but they, but they're not bloodline Israel. Those people do not seem to repent of this. This actually isn't their sin. It's not saying get away, we're racist or bigoted or we don't want you around, you can't have what we've got. It's saying, no, this is the thing between me and my fathers and God. And I, as a representative of my fathers, is, if, are coming forward and confessing not just my own sins, but the iniquities 
of my fathers. That's a really strange concept for us as Americans, postmodern, individualist Americans. We are like, we. this is it. This is our world, right? Maybe we have DNA and some bad habits from our parents, but like this is not, we don't come and confess for our parents' bad habits, right? We just, but maybe, honestly, maybe we ought to look into that a little more. Maybe investigating our family's sins, our proclivities, the things we've inherited, maybe it would be good for us to do a recounting of our history. And that's exactly what Israel does. And they begin in this grand way that they open. As I said, it's the call to worship, right? It, it's it's this, this exaltation and praise. They begin the way we all ought to begin when we come to God. Every time we come to God, we tend to rush right in, right? We either rush into um, sort of some... Some nice thank yous, but maybe like thank yous that you would give a friend that paid you back or returned something that they borrowed, right? We give God some nice thank yous. and But most of the time when we come to God, we go straight to the asking, right? God, can you please be with? Can you please do this? Can you please help me with this? Adoration praise is the first thing. God, you are the biggest, the most ultimate, the most infinite, the most authoritative. Because if I don't say that first, nothing else matters. Nothing else I look around and see can I trust. And nothing else can have influence into me. If I go straight to asking, I'm just trying to have influence around me. It's still me-centric. They're saying this isn't me-centric. This is you start with God anytime you come in worship. When we come and we gather, we call to worship. We have this moment where, where we, we Jordan tends to pick a psalm that is about the almighty God. I mean, how many times have you heard that in the Psalms? Almighty God, we praise you, right? These, these themes come about. So that's how they start. But then they jump right into this story. And if you follow this, you would see that this is the story of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. This is this, they, they review the whole Pentateuch. And then they review all the way up to their time in history. So this is a full journal where they say, no, we're not just going to remember an isolated event. We're actually going to retell our people's history from the very beginning of all time until the most recent pivotal moment, the return from exile to the wall. They, they recount all the way through. Yes, this was a long scripture because this was a condensed version of like the Bible up to this point. The, the, the priest had said, we really want to go there. We really want to say, this is our people. This is who we are. This is our identity. As Christians, do we often look and say, this Bible right here, this holds a huge part in understanding for me of, of an identity, right? Of, of what it means to be human. Now, we aren't Israelites, so we don't have that same kind of blood cultural identity. We can't relate to every single piece, but we can say, these are humans, ancient humans, that sound not that different to me. Because we have, we have read into these familiar stories and we've said, this sounds a lot like what I deal with every day. And this was written 2,000 years ago. And so what these priests do is they distill it down to what I call a haiku. Now, this was like an editing term that we used in documentary filmmaking. Uh, Taggart and I, when we would edit, we would distill everything down. We'd say, can we get it to the haiku? Or we'd say, you got to trim more fat. Trim the fat. Right? And so the idea was, can you take a story and can you get it down to the turning points, the essences, the things that define a character, the things that move you through the story? So on one level, on just a narrative storytelling level, the priests have done an incredible job of condensing the Bible. 
but it's so much more than that. This is not simply like a knowledgeable retelling of the Bible or a factual sort of um, expertly academic paper that's put mm -hmm. together to convey the story of the Bible. This is meant to be an incredibly emotionally moving account. Think of it more like this. Think of it more like, have you been to um, a 50th wedding anniversary or maybe been a part of a wedding anniversary that was a very significant event? Where, or, or a reunion where you gathered around with families and they throw that slideshow up, right, of the couple. Or, or even, even in many form a wedding, right, where they, they throw that up and they review. And, and the things that are th thrown up and the stories that are recounted tend to be these very significant events that give you a portrait, not just of the person, but what drew the people to each other. Underneath the story is a sense of what holds the desire, the emotional gravity, the pull, the, the nuts and bolts, the essence of a relationship. Why do you love somebody? It's, it's hard to put a finger on why you love somebody, but you can recount and you can say, you know what, if I think about these stories, there was this time and that thing that they did, that was it. That's what makes Carla, Carla. That's what makes uh, Elijah, Elijah. That's what makes Donna, Donna, is that she does that thing and the way she does it is uniquely hers and it's special and it's part of her relationship. And so this is deeply significant because this is the uh, most full and in-depth retelling of the Old Testament about the Old Testament. So you could call this, this is the Old Testament on the Old Testament. Right? We're getting meta here. It's like the people within this, this collection of books have, have, have reviewed everything up to this point, And they've said, okay, we're distilling this down. And a commentator, James Hamilton, says, how a writer inspired by the Holy Spirit interprets the Old Testament is deeply significant. It means that we can also, we can match up our interpretation of the Old Testament and we can see, is my God this God? This is it's a great litmus test for us is to say, this God, is this how I understand God? And so today I want to spend a little bit of time reviewing this and reviewing God as a promise keeper. And the way that the Israelites do this is the way that we all would honestly do it. Because God didn't just promise, he acted. So when we, when we think about somebody's life, the words kind of fall away. Like, they're not recounting conversations at the 50th wedding anniversary. They're, require, they're, they're reviewing significant life events. Times when the husband put his neck out there for the family. When he made a risk. When the wife slaved away raising the kids in that era, right? Like, when those things happened and they're recounting those, they're talking about sacrifices. They're talking about cost. Like, ask yourself this question. Without the life of Jesus... The words of Jesus would be a nice idea, but they would actually be nothing more than a nice idea. Without the life of Jesus, the words of Jesus would just be a nice idea. And so what the Israelites is saying is they're saying, we have a God who promised and we have a God who delivered. That's our God. And so they go through, and, and I want to take this in two layers. I'm not going to do it chronologically. I'm going to go in two layers. In the first part, we're going to look at what does God, the promise keeper, look like? What, first of all, what does he promise? Well, we start right at the beginning. He promises, he makes a covenant at the very beginning of creation, which is easy to miss. 
but he, it's, a, it's a different kind of promise. A covenant is a promise. He makes a different kind of covenant, and he says, Adam, if you eat of this tree, right, you will surely die. There's one tree that you can't have. If you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, you flip that on its head. Here's what God's doing. He's granting Adam life. He has made a promise for life for Adam. But he's created a bi, what's called a bilateral contract, right? If I do this, you need to do this. That's how he starts. We're all familiar with those. Every business contract is a bilateral contract, right? You're obligating in certain ways yourself to each other. And he said, I've made you, and I'm now obligating you to obey, to listen to your, to, to your creator. You can't eat of this or you will die. Well, what do we know that Adam did, right? So now we have death. But we have a God who started by promising life. He says, and then, and then he moves to that promise. And he talks, about, uh, he talks about moving to picking a people. right? So first he's made this promise of life. And we see that he's a, he's a wonderful creator. And I want to stick on this just for a second before I move to Abraham and, and picking a people. God has, has, as a creator, has an understanding of everything on earth. So in part of our exaltation of God, I think sometimes we put God up in the clouds. You know, it's like my, my kids at bed, we've been doing lots of conversations. And, and it's like, okay, well, but it, it's easy to say God's up in heaven and you point up to heaven, right? Because that's just the natural, like, he's up there. He's not here. And I'm like, no, no, God's all around you. Like, I want to correct a misunderstanding that I had when I was little. God is all around you. God has made everything around you. And everything in this earth was designed to perfectly be itself. Every spider was perfectly spider-like. Every dolphin was perfectly dolphin-like, right? And it was humans. Humans were the only created thing that stepped out of that. We said, we're going to do things differently. So God as a creator has created. And when we look around, we see God in all of his creations but we're broken people. And so we don't always see them exactly the way he intended them, but God is everywhere around us. So first of all, God is a powerful God that we can see in his creation. It's like Paul says in Romans, he says, everybody has actually witnessed God because everybody has seen his created work and they have to ask the question, where did it come from? The second thing that the Israelites recount at the beginning is they say, there's actually only one who can make life. This was profound to me. There's only one who can make life. Because I thought about it, I go, well, humans make so many things. But we do not engineer life. We have to work with life to make life. Always we have had to work with life. A clone, we've had to work with life to make life. When we're, when we're pregnant with a baby, that's life making life. Out of death, humans have not been able to make life. That is God's and God's alone. Why, why are these stories like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right, so, like, gravitating to us? Because there is this deep human desire to be like God. But everybody knows, as that story goes, that when you cross that threshold to be God as a broken human, you will fail, and it will go horribly wrong. The plot of every horror movie known to man, right? So they start and they say, we need to start at the basics. We need to start, first of all, saying, not out of any part of our own. We have beautiful creation, everything God has made, including ourselves. And we can never do it. We can't do it. God is the only one who can do it. And then we as Christians can, can like Paul in Colossians, we can say, Paul writes this, he says, And speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He holds it all together. So we can say it's not just Yahweh God the Father. Christ is through all of this. Through Christ is life everlasting. So then they move, then they move to Abraham. And what happens here? God makes a promise by choosing. He chooses us. We don't choose God. God chooses us out of an out of an apostate nation, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which was not a nation that knew God. God elected and chose Abraham. Just as we had an elect a politician, that word elect means it was chosen by us. Out of no reason, but, but then from us. So God, out of no reason, out of nothing that Abraham did, chose Abraham. So here is a God who has created everything, who is the only one who can make life, who watched and, and fought and coached and helped and coaxed mankind to come back, and they didn't. And he has picked, again, his first merciful act as a promise keeper is he has come back again, and he has chosen Abraham. And, in this, and then he begins the master plan for the Israelite nation. And this is a different kind of contract. God doesn't even make it possible for Abraham to break the contract here. He says, I've just chosen you, and I'm going to do it. I'm doing all of it. I'm just gonna, Look, I'm just going to do the whole thing from this point onward right now. Like, just give me the keys I'm going to drive because you guys are terrible drivers, right? And so that, that is what he's done. He's made a master's promise to a servant. It's a totally different kind of promise. And he brings Abraham out and he begins a people that we know as the Israelites. So this is super significant for these people. They're saying, I, I have a creator God. He, has, he is the only one who can make life. And he's chosen me even though I have no reason to be chosen. And then you'll see this theme, this circular theme just continue to evolve throughout history. It is the very theme we're living in right now. The very theme we're living in right now. There's been some changes. Time has moved things. But the core fundamental part of it is that we break promises. God never does. And that is a beautiful, glorious thing. So then he moves to, to in verse 9, he talks, you see that he talks about Exodus. He moves the next part and he says and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land what they're talking about there is the plagues that he brought about in Egypt right so this is this is the second fundamental character the third fundamental character sorry we have a God who creates chooses and we have a God who redeems a God who redeems which means how does he redeem he redeems by hurting people. The plagues hurt people. All of the firstborn sons in Egypt were killed. Right? So here's a God who in his redemption is a just and loving God. And the only way a just and loving father can bring true comfort is to defend his children from those who would want to kill and annihilate them because they have no love for the father, the family, or the children. How do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile so much of the Old Testament? We have to look and we have to say, is God redeeming and protecting? Because if he wasn't protecting and honoring and keeping his promise, we would not have a good God on our hands. We would have a maniac with no compass, with no sense of true north, 
but we don't. We have a God who is completely full of integrity. There is not any part inside of him that is not perfect. And so we have a God who brings death in order to preserve the life of the faithful. That's the kind of God we have. We have a redeeming God who would go to battle for us, who does and has and will again go to battle for us. At the end, when Jesus comes and returns, he will take down evil once and for all. That is the only way for there to be justice. He will say, those who do not want anything to do with me will perish because they want nothing to do with me. First of all, they would be miserable with me. And second of all, they would have no love for the rest of the people who are with me. How is that just? How does that make any sense? And so this is how we have to, we have to wrestle. This is not the easiest piece of theology, you guys. The, the, the Levites, the priests are coming up with this, this theology and they're interpreting and they're saying, this is our God. We know it because we've seen it by his actions out of his promises. And then we move to the wilderness and Canaan. So they, they, they escape out of Egypt. God gives them a pillar to lead them, right? He, he is a protector God. And then he leads them, and, and there's this period of time where the Israelites leave Egypt and they're in the wilderness, right? And they're wandering. And there's this period before they go into the promised land where all sorts of failure is happening. And it's here that God, God is like pulling them so closely. He's with them. He's, he's with them more closely here than I think anywhere else in actual presence in the Bible. A consistent pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. Like he's just, he's saying, don't worry, I'm here, right? If you can't go to sleep at night, leave the door open a crack because dad's in the living room. Like that's the level he's saying with his people here. God is a provider. And in that time, he leads them into the total wilderness, which biblically is always a place of nothingness, a place of brokenness, a place where our souls crumble. And he says, I'm going to give you your daily bread here. And he sends manna from the sky. He sends water for them. He provides for them. He is a provider in the wilderness, even though they have failed and need to learn. The way that he will learn is to continually and never stop providing. Doesn't mean their life's always easy, but he is going to be there. And he's going to, as a good coach, as a good dad, he's going to bring and he's going to say, I'm going to bring a law. So he says, look, let's, let's try again. As people who have failed, as people who have got turned away, I'm going to bring you a law. I'm going to bring, we have a God who's so good that he would say, even though you should just trust me, I'm going to give you laws that are totally of me, that are perfect, and I'm going to spell them out as clear as day for you in your time and context, which is exactly what he did to these people. He says, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. For your time and context, these are perfect things for you to do. Follow them to the T, Right? Does that mean we now follow all of them to the T? Absolutely not. There's laws in Leviticus that make no sense for us to follow anymore. They were given to these people at their specific context and time by a loving God who said, this is good. The character of all of them is flawless and can be moved forward. The actual rules, they're, they're based in a totally different culture than ours. But what we do know is that God is a God who brings good law. What that means that for us as Christians is we can say, if this is my history, then the words that Jesus gave, the spirit that he gave them to those people whose ethics and philosophy we totally still follow, whose culture is not actually that far removed from ours, especially if you think of the Romans, right? He says, 
those you can follow. And those, Jesus says, I'm going to give you those in a way that are universal, right? And so we have a God who provides even to giving us a law. And the last point before we get into to us, before looking at us, is what is the final character of a promise keeper? This is a God who is compassionate. In Deuteronomy, the blessings, the, the, there's blessings and curses, right? And, and the way that that uh, covenant is set up is that I will bless you in all these ways, but there's also curses if you don't follow through. There's, there's things that will happen. There's consequences, right? To put it in modern justice terms, if you do that thing that's against the law, you're going to get a consequence for it, right? And so, but in, in all of that, all throughout the rest of this, if you go verse 26 through 35, you see words like this, nevertheless. What does nevertheless mean? It means regardless of everything that just happened. Regardless of everything that just happened. This. So here, here we've got one. Regardless of all of the great things that God did, that brought them into Canaan in verse 27, captured fortified cities. This little weenie army comes in and they capture fortified city, cities, vineyards, olive orchards. They have just absolute abundance. 26, nevertheless, regardless of all of that, they were totally disobedient and rebelled against God and cast the law behind their back. They killed God's prophets who had warned them in order to turn, to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. So as they were counting this, they're saying there's, there's that kind of nevertheless, but then look, if you move forward, there's, there's other kinds of neverthelesses, where it says, nevertheless, God in his mercy, God in his mercy, in his goodness, nevertheless, he's a God of justice and mercy. Even though you have done all of these things, even though I have every right to curse you, and in some cases, God does curse them. In other cases, he says, you've cried out to me in mercy, even though you've done all the things that deserve a curse, and your cry has been heard. And that, that gets us perfectly situated to where we are right now. Thank God we have a God who keeps his promises for us because we are people who can probably look in the past month, past week, maybe today, and say, I have broken even a promise on Mother's Day that I, that I didn't realize I made. I broke it. Didn't do it. I, I said today, today, Megan, today's your day. But what I meant in my head was until 2 p.m. today's your day, right? And so, like, I'm looking at 2 p.m. and I'm going, and she's kind of looking at me. And like, I'm like, you have every right to look at me that way right now. Because I just, I just basically broke my promise by sort of just mentally caving in at two and saying, okay, I think in my head Mother's Day is over, right? And, and, and good for her. She, she looked at me in that way, right? And I go, oh yeah, I have a plan. Let's make a plan for dinner. I said, today was your day, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a person who keeps my promises. Just today, I have broken promise. Not a huge one, maybe. You might say, well, John, don't even worry about it. But here's the reality. It proves that as, as, as people, we are in this position. No matter how hard we try, we will be people who can't keep their promises. And thank God we have a merciful, compassionate God. Hamilton again writes that this is the basic process of, these, of this review. If you go and you look at the circle, it is God is good to Israel. Israel sins. God shows mercy. God is good to Israel. Israel sins. God shows mercy. Right? This is the loop. Now, think of, think of your life. Uh, 
God is good to me. I sin. God shows mercy through Jesus Christ. God is good to me. I sin. God shows. I mean, it's the same story. This is written like a poem, like a song, and I wish so much that there was some way to like put this into words and have this like epic ballad where we could feel that like emotional gut-wrenching feeling of God returning. I mean, there's got to be some swinging melody, right? Some reprise that comes back where God has returned. And here it is again, this feeling that this just like gut-wrenching, probably kind of melodrama, you know, that like deep cello is coming out and it's like God has come back. He's come back and he shows mercy. God has been good to the nation of Israel and they do not deserve it, is what this says. And we are so reminded of God's faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And so are we more like God in this story or are we more like Israel? And thank God we have the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ that is working with us because we know full and well that without Jesus, there's just no chance. Without the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus, without saying, bring more of that, I want more of that, because this person, left to his own devices, is not going to be able to keep promises. The only promises I will keep are promises to, that I made that benefit myself. Those are the kind of promises. When, when things get tough, we keep those promises intuitively as fallen man. But it takes supernatural strength. It takes the Holy Spirit to come in and say, I am going to fight what my natural broken state wants. But God, God has you right where he wants you if you go, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I broke the promise. He says, that's, that's right actually where you should be. Not because I'm trying to make you feel guilty, but because now you have it in the right perspective. So here's, a, here's an illustration for you. Have you ever seen a photograph and it looks, I saw this just the other day. I was looking up actually maps of Jerusalem for this series, right? And I was trying to figure out what did it kind of look like? And I saw this one, I go, man, I didn't know the temple still exists in Jerusalem. Am I crazy? The temple still exists in Jerusalem? And, and then it says, this is a scale model. In the corner, I see some guy's sneaker and it's like this big, right? And I'm like, oh, that would help. I was literally looking for cars and people walking around. It looked so real. I had no sense of scale, right? I had thought this teeny little model was this massive aerial view of a city. I had no sense of scale. Or think of it this way, uh, this is gonna date me, honey, I shrunk the kids, right? Like, this is like, Rick Moranis is like on some green screen, and like, if you didn't have a humongous ant in the background, you would have no idea how big he is, it's Rick Moranis, but it's because everything around him is, in, is to scale. This story, this story is the priest saying, let's get this to scale. Guys, we're way out of scale here. You guys think you're like the full-size city of Jerusalem and you're like a tiny little postage stamp size of Jerusalem. Let's get this into scale. Again, not because you should feel horrible about yourself all the time, but because only when you're at the right scale, when you see things in the right scale, can you see God where he's supposed to be and you where you're supposed to be. That's the only way you can do life. The good life, the only way we're supposed to do life is at that scale. And we have kicked out the scale. We've kicked out the rulers. We've come up with a background and we've said, man, I'm big. Man, I am so big. The only time I don't have to keep a promise is when I can hide it and I can get away with it and it benefits me, then I don't have to keep the promise. Because we don't want things to scale. 
It hurts for things to be a scale. It hurts for God to have authority over you. It really hurts because you're not in control of your story anymore. And the narrative of the 21st century and the narrative of the 20th century is you make the rules. You get to decide. You set the vision. You pursue that. If that's good for you, you go for it. I don't see that. I don't see that anywhere in this, in this narrative, in this story. I see a totally different way of thinking. That we, as people living in America in this time, we just have to remind ourselves of regularly. Because it does not come naturally to see this way. James K. Smith describes like this. He says that the common and typical modus operandi of all of us is to grab the gifts and refuse the giver. We grab the gifts, we refuse the giver. Everything around you is a gift. God has put your life to you as a gift. When you wake up, your life is full of gifts. And he says, you grab those gifts and you refuse the giver. You tell God, you don't really have authority over every part of my life. You tell the church, you say, mm, I make the rules though. I don't know if I want a people that can have authority with me. I don't know if I want a system that has that. I don't. That makes me feel really uncomfortable. And you know what? If I'm uncomfortable, it must be wrong. I'm not saying when you're uncomfortable, it's always wrong or right. I'm saying, look and put things in scale and then ask that question. Really ask that question. And really look and see, is, are, are the people that are challenging you, is the authority that's challenging you, is it loving? Is it seeking to keep its promises? And are you seeking to keep yours? Because what we see here in verse 25 is they ate and they became filled and became fat and delighted themselves with the great goodness. This is the story of the Israelites. They go into Canaan and they become fat and delighted. And God says, actually, I want you to become delighted. That's so good that you're delighted. It's just the turning part afterwards where you say you don't need me anymore that we could do without. Right? And that's our tendency when things get out of scale is we say, look at the goodness. Look at the goodness. Thank you, God, for the goodness. Next day, look at the goodness. Man, you're right. You're right. I am pretty good at that. But God, thank you. Really, and, and it starts, and it's a gradient. And pretty soon we find ourselves, if we're listening to that internal voice that talks about things out of scale, that adores the fatness and the goodness and thinks God is the bringer of the goodness, we will be totally out of scale. God is not always the bringer of goodness. Not the kind of goodness that we think of as good. Sometimes he's the bringer of hardships. And he's still a promise keeper. So that's the kind of God we have. We have a promise keeper who is merciful. And he says, don't act presumptuously. It's another thing that comes up here in verse 29. He says, he says, yet they acted presumptuously, presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Presum what does that mean? They took, they took for granted without confirming they made an assumption and then when get in, uh, my son ran down the street to a neighbor's house. I didn't know he had left, didn't know where he was first time this had happened. Kind of love that like we're in a neighborhood where he could run and knock on their door and like, I kind of love that, but I was freaked out. I was like, he's gone. Ezra made a presumption. He said, well, from what I know about dad, I'm going to make the leap and say it'd be fine for me to go three doors down to the neighbor's house to ask you my dad. And I'm four. He was presumptuous. That's just what he was. He was wrong. I mean, actually, now that I think about it, I kind of liked part of it. I love the spirit, love the spunk, but like, he was wrong. He was presumptuous. Sometimes we're presumptuous. We say, yeah, I kind of, I know the Bible. I, eh, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And then it's, it's the best thing is when somebody else is around you and they go, yeah, that is, 
It's totally fine, right? How many bad things have started with that scenario? <laughs> and this, this is a priest saying, let's not, let's not do that. Let's not act presumptuous. Let's be people who are wise. Let's be people who look in the scope of history. And let's realize that when things are at scale, this is our spirituality. And, and I'll, get, I'll get here to the end for us. This is our spirituality. We should have a refugee spirituality. I love this. So again, James K. Smith, love this guy. He wrote this book, On the Road with St. Augustine, which follows one of the early church fathers. Um, sorry, Augustine is the right pronunciation. And he says, he, he calls this a refugee spirituality that we should have. He says, we're, go, we're back to God, but we're moving in. We're seeking safety in the arms of God amidst the foreign land. We're escaping the horrors of a world without God. We're escaping into a safety, but it is into an unknown nation, a nation that loves and desires us and one that will grant us asylum, but we are refugees there. Where he gets this is, is Augustine equates the Christian life to being on a raft. He says, we're all on a raft. We're not on a raft together, by the way. It'd be nice if we were all together. We're not. We're each on a raft. We're each separately. Even in our church, we're not on the same raft. We are each on our own raft in our own refugee spirituality. We are each unique people that are in unique scenarios, that are on unique rafts. That raft that we're on is shaped like a cross. And the only person on that cross with us is Christ. That's refugee spirituality. We're going through our life. We're on a raft. That raft is shaped like a cross. And on it with us is Jesus Christ himself. Not even, not even your closest friend, your husband and your wife. They're not on the, the raft with you. They're on a different raft. They have a different spiritual journey. They have a different thing that's happening. But each of them have Christ with them. Just that moved me. That the Israelites were each on their own raft. And they were lost at sea. And they needed a great God who would grant them asylum as refugees. And would bring them back. So I want to ask this to us today. These are, these are where I want us to get practical. Hopefully, it's clear. The promises. Read this chapter again, you guys. Chapter 9. Just read it and see the promises that God makes. How faithful he is in his actions and backing each of them up and coming through and saying, I am a man of my word. I am the best kind of man, a man of my word who does what he says he's going to do. And then look at our promises to each other and look at them. Look at them in this way. Look at your promises first. I just want you to start here. First, look at your promises in your family. Look at those promises. Those are such core promises. Look at your promises in Christian community. Where have you told people in this church, where have you told people in your family, you would do things that you are not coming through with? Where has your yes not been your yes? Where has your no not been your no? Where have you said, I'm my own authority in it, and you know what, it just makes sense right now, I'm going to do this. And you have broken trust. Bring those, bring those confessions to each other. Bring those things to each other. And, and confess by changing the course. Either say, that yes should have been a no, and it's going to be a no, and I just need to say that. Or, that yes needs to be a yes, and it's going to be a yes. We have to think about this on a social justice level, right? That with the murder of Ahmed Arbery, like this, this, this black man running through this neighborhood and just murdered. There's been white pastors, and I've been moved by this, white pastors that have said, we're with him. We're not going to just let this be. 
a black issue, right? They're saying social justice requires a certain kind of turn, a certain kind of change, a certain kind of responsibility to act the way that we've said we ought to act, an integrity, keeping our promises. And then, and this is the hardest one, Jesus says we do this with our enemies. We must even keep our promises with those we despise. So this, these are the challenges for us. And I just want to leave us with some really specific verses. There's a bunch of them here. I'm just going to let these wash over you. These are not meant to be picked apart each one by one. I'm just going to read some scripture to you guys. And then we're going to close here. This is, this is from Jesus leaving. Just start imagining, just in the church, if this happened. Just start imagining this, just in our small church, if this happened. Jesus is leaving in his farewell discourse in John 14 through 16. So he's talking to his disciples, saying, I'm going to leave soon. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Romans 13, 8. Let no date, debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. He calls it indebtedness. Continuing debt. I, I don't know. I just need to put some skin on this. In Christian community, to neighbors and those who, who you love, you're in debt to them. Okay? The, your love, Jesus, indebts you to them. You owe them something. And accept their gifts. Become indebted to them. Sometimes I think we're too proud to accept something. And we need to be, we need to be willing to obligate ourselves a little bit. And say, actually... Bringing that debt into me is going to help us build love together. If I, don't, if I don't indebt myself to you, how are we ever going to love each other? So that's a principle there. He says continuing debt to love each other. Galatians 6, 2, carrying each other's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 15, 7, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Romans 14, 13, let us stop passing judgment on one another. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. All the brothers here send your greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What does that mean? It means in everything you do, in your hospitality, the holy kiss was this, the kiss was just a way to greet each other. It was a, an act of hospitality and friendship and warmth. A holy kiss. It says have a warmth and friendship where God pervades everything. Not just God talk, but godly actions. Where you live like Jesus before you even talk about Jesus. Greet one another with a holy kiss. If you haven't noticed, these are all one another's. There are so many one another statements. I think there's like 40 plus one another statements. And they show us how we keep promises, what we're asked to keep. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Be completely humble and patient. And gentle, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 2, 4, 2. Encourage one another and build each other up. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4, 13. Submit to one another. Ephesians 5, 21. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 20. Don't grumble against each other's brothers or you will be judged. James 5, 9. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. James 5 through 16. 5, 16. Last one. 
And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. All of this is loving one another. But there's so many finer points put on it. And I just want to challenge you. Are you keeping these promises or is there something that you've let down? Because we have Jesus who kept his promises. Who from the line of David as an Israelite, who could finally fulfill the promises that they couldn't keep here. As the ultimate Israelite, he came and he fulfilled the promise that they had all realized they had let down. Even when it meant his own death was required to do it. He followed his father in obedience to the cross. He knows full and well that we cannot do it like him. And he wouldn't have died to forgive us of our sins if it weren't necessary. So don't, don't, don't make perfection the thing that depresses you, right? Jesus is the only perfect one. But let it spur you on to be more like him. Don't grab the gift and disown the giver. But grab the gift and seeing its glorious beauty and power. Give life to the giver. Give your life to the giver in return. So let's pray and then we'll have communion. God, it's just, it's been on my heart that more than anything else, you ask us simply to be process people, to do the right thing, do the next right thing, and that means keep our promises. That means be careful what we commit to. We thank you that you are a God who has done that for us. God, I pray that this would be convicting to us, that this would stick with us. God, I pray your blessing on these people, God. Jesus Christ. Amen.